Good afternoon. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. I'm going to devote um, this week's show to reading a, a lengthy story called 40 Visits to the Worm Farm. Um, given the, the, the uh, lovably slapdash amateurism of, of Hooting Yard, I'm not entirely sure that uh, there's time to read the whole story in this show. I haven't worked that out. Um, I'm sure you don't mind. And if I don't finish it, um, I'll just finish it next week. The story is from um, a paperback book of mine called Twitching and Shattered. And uh, this was published as long ago as 1989. Um, it's very rare. There were only ever 300 copies printed. And if you would like a chance to own a rare copy of this, one has been found, a mint copy. Um, and it's currently being auctioned on eBay um, with all proceeds going to the Hooting Yard Benevolent Fund for Distressed Out-of-Print Pamphleteers. Um, if you go to podcasts.resonancefm.com, um, scroll down, and you'll find f further details of how to, how to put in your bid for this wonderful book. Anyway, I'm going to read some of it to you, and this is called 40 Visits to the Worm Farm. 1. By Bicycle. A number of the spokes went awry and I had to walk the last half mile. A member of staff at the worm farm promised to have the bicycle fixed for me. I handed over a soiled five-pound note to cover the cost of repair and caught the bus home. 2. By bus. Thrilled to distraction at the prospect of the return of my trusty bicycle. The past week had been harrowing. I had hardly stepped outside my allotment shed. It was pouring with rain. A party of dishevelled geese had set up a temporary shelter at the entrance to the worm farm. The farm itself was in disarray. Canute Hellhound, director of research, had locked himself inside the staff canteen, brandishing a pitchfork and threatening to impale several members of staff on it. Desperate attempts were being made to contact his doctor. I felt ravaged by my insignificance and left the scene at once. On the bus home, I realised that, that I did not know the name of the woman who had promised to mend my bicycle and had only a dim recollection of her appearance. 3. The next day. The man who grows turnips on the allotment next to mine offered to give me a lift to the worm farm. He said he would be passing that way. In the car, he told me that his son worked as an engineer in Swanage and that his daughter had been awarded the Order of Lenin. I wanted to ask him why he grew nothing but turnips on his plot, but was unable to steer the conversation in the right direction. He was unable to steer his car in the right direction. We arrived at Hooting Yard without having passed the worm farm. He seemed dreadfully embarrassed and began to unfold an enormous road map. It was so dog-eared that the folds threatened to become rips and in some cases had already done so. His forefinger trailed aimlessly over the map, unable to locate the worm farm. He apologised with a sincerity that rattled me. I said that it really didn't matter and that I would find my way on foot. I got out of the car. I had no idea where I was. I spoke to a few passers-by to ask directions and was awestruck by their rum accents and bearing. No one was able to help me. I was unnerved by the lopsided gate which seemed to afflict all the inhabitants of Hooting Yard and by their sickly pallors. 
I felt as if I was in a foreign land. The smell of turpentine hung heavy in the air. I took refuge in a pub. Instead of carpeting or floorboards, there was sticky gravel underfoot. The beer tasted vile, but I settled to it and got riotously drunk, so much so that my memory is impaired. Oh, I get the occasional shudder of recollection, a pack of wolfhounds, two men carrying a winding sheet, a bottle of bleach with a loose lid, but I'm still unable to work out quite what happened. Later that day, or perhaps another day, I don't know, I came to with a massive hangover at my mother's house. She strewed my room with temperance tracts and refused to speak to me for a week. 4. Another abortive trip to the worm farm. The bus was waylaid by highwaymen in period costume. They took my watch and an old biro which I treasured. Following this incident, the bus driver immediately turned around and drove back to the depot to file a full report. 5. Weighed down by a huge roll of bays which I had promised to deliver to my aunt, I waited an hour for the bus. Luckily, the trip passed without incident. Arriving at the worm farm, I was met at the gates by Canute Hellhound. He took me to one side and began to declaim at length on the need for more whisks. Something in his manner transfixed me, his high-pitched jabbering rising to shrieks and howls at particularly pertinent moments in his discourse was absolutely hypnotic. I think we must have walked around the perimeter fence 12 or 13 times as his enthused proclamations made me more and more convinced that there were not enough whisks. Then I realised that I had left my bays on the bus. I panicked and stammering apologetic rubbish to Canute Hellhound made off at once to catch the bus to the depot. An hour or so later I arrived to find that the depot had been struck by lightning. Damage was limited, but my bays had been entirely incinerated. I wept. First my bicycle, which as time went on seemed lost forever, and now the bays. Perhaps everything I owned that began with B would be taken from me. Some malign figure, hooded no doubt, enwrapped in a grisly shift, would steal away my books, my balaclava, my beekeeping utensils and my blunderbuss. Tears streamed down my face. Perhaps even my breakfast would be whipped away from the table before I had a chance to tuck into it. Ghastly visions of the future swept before me. I swooned. Six. Monday. Canute Hellhound arrived for his first day at work. He had been overjoyed to gain this appointment. Director of research at the finest worm farm in the land. He drooled at the very thought. He, Canute Impetigo Hellhound, son of humble tourniquet looseners, had scaled the heights. A sallow urchin ushered him into his office and the first blow of disappointment hit him. 
there was too much wood in the room. Nearly all of the furniture and most of the fixtures, all wooden. It could not be countenanced. He must make a firm stand from the very beginning. Beckoning the urchin back into the office, he delivered his first command in ringing tones. "'Fetch me a flamethrower, you young scallywag!' roared Hellhound. 7. Tuesday. Canute Hellhound sat on the floor in the charred shell of his office, dallying with an earwig which he had interrupted in its innocent trek across the room. He wondered if it was a deformed worm. Here was something he could research thoroughly. Placing the earwig in a small dish, he strode off to the lab. It was deserted. Most of the exciting scientific equipment had been packed away higgledy-piggledy in cupboards to make room for about 30 broken bicycles which were strewn all over the lab. Canute Hellhound pondered the meaning of these funny metallic constructions. Heaving one from the floor, he laid it on its side on a worktop and mucked about with the wheels and the saddle height adjuster. He was deeply impressed. Carefully placing the earwig on one of the flat tyres, he rummaged around in the cupboards until he found the time-lapse photography equipment. It took him all afternoon to set it up. Ah, but what an afternoon! Worth at least a page or two when the definitive history of scientific achievement came to be written. Hellhound beamed smugly. He could feel his destiny beginning to enfold him in its warm and musky wraps. 8. Wednesday. Hellhound failed to turn up for work. Research at the worm farm came to a standstill. At 10.30am, the personnel and plumbing director rang his home. There was no reply. In fact, Canute Hellhound was on the premises. Since the small hours, he had been perched unsteadily on the roof of the worm farm's staffed dance hall, whittling away at a plank of wood. From time to time, he peered off into the distance through his homemade rubbery telescope. His vantage point afforded him a stupendous view, although a chill had begun to set into his bones. 9. The Pitchfork Canteen Incident, Thursday. Many questions remain. Where did Hellhound acquire the pitchfork? Why did he paint it blue? Whose paint did he use? Was the paint bought or stolen? Was the paint still wet? If so, did it stain Hellhound's hands? Or was he wearing gloves? Of what fabric were the gloves woven? Was it wool? If so, had Hellhound personally sheared a sheep? Did he know how to without injuring the sheep? If he did injure the sheep, did the sheep survive? If not, was its death mourned? Where was it buried? Did Hellhound accept responsibility? Did he attend a short service in commemoration of the sheep? Did he read out a moving prayer from the pulpit? Was he a religious man at the best of times? When were the best of times? Did Hellhound realise they were the best? Or did he think them merely mediocre? How did he arrive at this judgement? Why was he so averse to wood? 10. Friday Extract from Canute Hellhound's four-hour lecture delivered to the 2,000 staff of the worm farm in the Great Worm Farm Assembly Hall. Good morning, he said. I stand before you wearing a tweed suit. Tweed suits me, I know. I know too that it is the cloth of weakness, of dispersal, desuetude and ruin. 
but I'm not here to discuss the language of fabric. I am here to give you the benefit of my long years of research into our friends, the worms. At this point, Hellhound flourishes a set of superbly intricate diagrams from beneath his jacket and hangs them up with clothes pegs. He talks at length on each diagram. His voice rises with excitement. His eyes become glazed with fanaticism. His arms gesticulate in an enthused manner. He says things like, The glands of the investing tissue secrete lime and deposit it always submerged. These arrest the spat at the moment of emission. They detach with a hook the piles covered with fascines and branches, if we can use the term, buried in the sands or mud, their polypiferous portion sallying into the water. The raches, roughened and furrowed down the middle with pointed spiculi or tubercular ramifications prolonged in a straight canal, the columella edge sometimes callous, this is the critical moment for the hapless bivalve. He seizes it with a three-pronged fork, aiding also the functions of the stomach, filled with villainous green matter, which is conical, swollen in the middle, diminished and tapers off, producing new beings covered with vibratile cilia, furnished with two fins, limited only by the length of the stem, but in a moment beginning to dissolve its corporation, a soft, reticulated crust or bark full of little cavities. The hinder ones loosen their hold with four or six rows of ambulacral pieces designated by the names of compass, plumula, bristling envelope, levelled bayonets, smothered. Last come the terrible and multiplied engines of calcareous immovable thread-like cirri with transverse bands, many of which crumble. Sometimes, sometimes they are dredged. Thank you so much. Forty Visits to the Worm Farm, Part 11 Violetta returned to the worm farm at midnight, carrying her puncture repair kit, and made straight for the lab. Luckily, the searchlights were broken. She jimmied the door open with her spatula and stepped inside. She could not risk turning the lights on, so she paused to allow her eyes to become accustomed to the darkness. When they had done so, she was nonplussed. Her bicycles had vanished. <clears throat> in their place, a massive contraption of indeterminate purpose had been installed. At one point, the ceiling had been knocked through to make room for it. It took her a few moments to realise what had happened. The bicycles, or at least their constituent parts, were still there in the lab. They had been systematically taken to pieces and reassembled into this monstrous mechanism. She was unsure how to react. If she made overt investigations or tampered with the contraption, her calumny would surely come to light. Yet how could she bear to abandon her scheme now at so crucial a juncture? Tiptoeing from the lab, she crept away from the worm farm in the darkness to ponder her dilemma. 12. 
She returned to the lab the following night. This time she brought with her a panoply of tools and mechanical bits and pieces capable of carrying out almost any technical reconstruction work she could think of. She had decided to take the purposeless contraption to bits and to reassemble her bicycles one by one. It would not be possible to complete her task in a single night, but she had contingency plans. Demented violence was not beyond her. Nerve gas and dangerous chemical compounds were a language she understood. Before entering the lab, she made a detour to the squalid outbuildings on the edge of the worm farm and collected a few bags of cement, animal waste and gritty particles. She had been awake all day plotting this escapade in fine detail and left nothing to chance. Stowing the sacks by the porch, she entered the lab as before. Again, she was nonplussed. This time, the contraption itself had vanished. All trace of her broken bicycles was gone. The hole in the ceiling had been repaired in a rudimentary fashion with rush matting. She spent four hours searching the entire premises until dawn. She found nothing. 13. Her sawtooth jet with its delicate nubs and extra-sensitive roseate Bellerophon system circled low over the worm farm. Bleeping monitors in the cockpit recorded triggered signal delay codes and converted them into a veritable broth of gobbledygook which she would later be able to decipher at the potato building. The scanners picked up something lascivious and untoward from the worm farm chaplaincy. She steered the plane around and swooped in low once more. Below, she could see Canute Hellhound skirting the perimeter fence, a wooden carving of a swordfish tucked under his arm. She had grounds for suspecting that he was the man who had tampered with her bicycles. On impulse, she decided to strafe him. Setting the controls to automatic, she climbed up into the gun turret. Just as she was about to let loose a volley of lethal gunfire, the jet nosedived unaccountably and plunged into a lake. She was lucky to escape with her life. 14. Assuming the sallow urchin disguise took about an hour, in an anteroom within the potato building, she greased her hair down, applied flour and a yellow waxy substance to her face and donned the greyish-brown rags. Their stench repelled her, but the deceit was necessary. Once the disguise was complete, with a steel rod shoved down one trouser leg, she practised her drool in front of the mirror and gave her greasy forelog a few experimental tugs. Perfect. Lurching and limping urchin-like to Hellhound's office, she snivelled and hung her head. As expected, he summoned her at once. There you are, young fella, me lad. Go and get me some mountaineering pythons this instant. She had grown used to his despotic manner and, bowing her head, made as if to scamper off in self-abasing fashion. As soon as she was out of the door, she heard Canute Hellhound pick up the phone and dial. She waited, listening intently. She heard only snatches of his conversation. Another swinging attack, balksite, clumps of hay, destitution, ears, febrifuge, gin and blood oranges, halitosis, impermanence, Judgment Day, kept hooting, lavatorial, mishmash, no drudge worth their salt, obeisance, pestilential, quizzling mouths, flibbity-gibbet, rented socks, smudged, turnip soup, ungodly, viler by the minute, whisks, 
X-rays are not hollyhocks, you curmudgeonly swine. Zoo brain. Pah. He was on the phone to that elderberry wretch again, obviously. Violetta made a low huffing sound and set off for the warehouse. As she crossed the grit circles, she stopped in her tracks. Perhaps Elderberry was an accomplice in the heinous mutilation of her bicycles. Tearing off her greasy wig and wrenching the steel rod out of her trouser leg, she turned around and pelted back to the potato building. Strictly speaking, it was not part of the worm farm, but it had been annexed to it, and the big fence enclosed it within the precincts. Panting, she threw open the doors. The monitors were bleeping away happily to themselves. She sat down at the Wesneyord console, frantically tapping measured cross-referencing data into the wafery information banks, all the while throwing switches, adjusting the intricate system of pulleys and wrenching the red sarcophagus levers off of their pointy hinges. At last her work was complete. A blip indicated that the enormous printer was about to chug out the results. Smoking desperately, she waited to see what malevolence would be brought to light. 15. She clambered onto the roof of the latrine. The canisters were still there, but the pods had been disturbed. That much was obvious. A heron stood preening on the horizon, silhouetted against the setting sun. Where was Canute Hellhound? Forty visits to the worm farm. Visit number sixteen. He tugged at the piece of string and heard distant clanking. So far, so good. That would be enough for one day. Replacing the iron helmet on his head, he fixed the bolts back into place and let dangle a delicate ribbon over the opening as a safeguard. Sighing, he started up the huge granite staircase, holding carefully to the rail. The battery on his torch was running low. Wheezing, he finally reached the top. He squeezed past the rusted portcullis and whacked the tin tray set into the wall. There was a whirring noise and the fine grill and plastic covering shifted to the left. He emerged into the light and found himself standing ten yards away from Canute Hellhound. The director of research greeted him with a grim and gritty smile. The pair shook hands. Seventeen. Elderberry's canonization was not unexpected. Three popes had testified to being spiritually uplifted by his collected sermons, and a small religious publishing house continued to issue his diaries with their fanatic itemization of acts of charity and compassion on a regular basis. Some felt that his alleged self-seeking character would disqualify him for the sainthood while still living, but the new Pope had scotched these rumours in the most decisive manner. Elderberry's name was now ensconced firmly in the list of saints between St Egwin and St Elias. 
It had been at his own suggestion that he had been officially proclaimed the patron saint of worms, which was a partial explanation for his now daily visits to the worm farm. Here he would sprinkle holy water from the sacred wells at Cocktlosh on any worm whose path he happened to cross and offer devotional prayers in the worm farm chaplaincy at noon each day. Canute Hellhound had issued a memorandum to the effect that any member of staff not attending these services nor essaying the prayers with sufficient gusto would be dismissed instantly, never to sully the worm farm with their heathen presence for evermore. Elderberry's evangelical enthusiasm was truly infectious. Members of staff were forever volunteering new ways to pay obeisance to the patron saint. Huge trays of worms were carried into the daily service that they too might benefit from the light of faith shed incandescently about. Lavish floral decorations were hung from the entrance gates. Small plaster statuettes of elderberry, decked out archaically in robes and tunics, were manufactured for sale in the worm farm souvenir shop. And yet, there was a more sinister purpose to the saint's daily visitations. He and Hellhound were colluding in a project of no mean dimensions, destined to shake the world. 18. Two days later, Elderberry again drove to a deserted spot some three miles away from the worm farm and parked his car under a shelter of wild foliage and greenery. Whacking a tin tray set into the ground, he made entrance to a fabulous network of tunnels weaving for miles below the surface. One route took him to the wells at Cocktlosh, one to his turnip patch, yet another to the dank cellars beneath the worm farm. It was along this third tunnel that Elderberry repaired, dragging along behind him the infernal machine made out of whisks, which he hoped would bring him another step closer to the accomplishment of his grand design. 19. Violetta, returning a tray of worms to its rightful abode in Alpha Blue Wormery, saw Elderberry limping decisively towards the outbuildings. Foisting the tray upon a grizzled accomplice, she made to follow him, simultaneously setting the controls on her portable arcane hooter. This would transmit anything important back to the bleeping consoles in the potato building. Elderberry's frayed grey cassock billowed behind him in the wind, Snow was forecast, but had not yet fallen. He entered the most sordid of the huts, and after various complicated adjustments to a series of occult mechanisms concealed behind a rotting pile of rotting turnips, began the long trudge down the granite staircase to the cellars. As the trap door clanged shut behind him, he heard the muffled sound of the hut door creaking open on its hinges. Had he been followed? He had. Violetta stood in the stinking gloom, beflummoxed. She had seen Elderberry enter this hut, yet all trace of him had vanished. Dialing calculations onto the arcane hooter, she listened out for the tiniest noise. Elderberry, a few feet underneath her, cursing that Hellhound had not yet installed adequate soundproofing, tried to stifle the sound of his wheezing. Both remained like this for about a quarter of an hour until it dawned on Violetta that her arcane hooter had been deliberately incapacitated. Her fury was demoniac. She smashed the hut to pieces in her rage, thereby unknowingly destroying Elderberry's entry and exit system. 
for this rank and vile hut housed the intricate network of technological mumbo-jumbo which controlled all the entrances to the cellars and their tributary tunnels. The patron saint of worms was hopelessly trapped. 20. Covered in old sailcloth and sacking, Elderbury lay shivering in the dismal cellars, the fruits of years of impossibly brilliant work stacked around him. The machine made of alabaster, the machine made of bicycles, the machine made of cork, the machine made of derailments. They were all here, splendid in their uselessness without the final one, the machine made of zaribas, which still lay in fragmentary bits of jumble in and around the turnip patch at the allotments. And now, trapped as he was, he had no way of collecting it, bringing it here to assume its place among the others. He would no longer be able to carry out the last and most crucial phase of the project, the majestic synthesis of the 26 machines to create the alphabet monster, which would build a new heaven and a new earth. As I suspected, there's just not time to finish the story this week. That was 20 of the 40 visits to the worm farm. There isn't actually very much of the story left, but um, no time to do it this week. And that's a kind of incentive for you to uh, tune in at the same time next week to hear the end of this and whatever else I might um, decide to read. Um, so that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Bye-bye. <laughs>